traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. doesn't seem to be that long ago since we talked about the unique mystique of the aviation mystery that Rod Serling so expertly combined with the Twilight Zone in the Odyssey of Flight 33. It was actually 13 Twilight Zone episodes ago, so is it too soon to go back to that particular well? Later on I'll read you a review of this episode that thinks it is. But 55 years later, with the benefit of being able to watch The Twilight Zone whenever and in whatever order we want to, do we think so? Well, let's find out when we look at tonight's episode, The Arrival. This object, should any of you have lived underground for the better parts of your lives and never had occasion to look toward the sky, is an airplane. Its official designation, a DC-3. We offer this rather obvious comment because this particular airplane, the one you're looking at, is a freak. Now, most airplanes take off and land as per schedule. On rare occasions, they crash. But all airplanes can be counted on doing one or the other. Now, yesterday morning, this particular airplane ceased to be just a commercial carrier. As of its arrival, it became an enigma. A seven-ton puzzle made out of aluminum, steel, wire, and a few thousand other component parts, none of which add up to the right thing. In just a moment, we're going to show you the tail end of its history. We're going to give you 90% of the jigsaw pieces, and you and Mr. Sheckley here of the Federal Aviation Agency will assume the problem of putting them together along with finding the missing pieces. This we offer as an evening's hobby, a little extracurricular diversion, which is really the national pastime in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 22nd of September 1961, written by Rod Serling and directed by Boris Segal. Now, it was originally intended to be directed by Buzz Kulik, but it was, of course, Boris Segal who took it on. And we actually reach the end of Boris Segal's short two-episode Twilight Zone run. He started out strong with his first episode, The Silence, in season two. So let's see if he ends strong too. Now, I'm not sure whether I've actually ever said anything negative about a Rod Sailing opener narration before, and I'm not necessarily saying it now. But this opening line of, this object, if any of you have lived underground most of your lives and never had occasion to look towards the sky is an airplane seems to be very condescending and needlessly sarcastic sailing often has this tricky wordplay thing going on but this one seems more like someone imitating rod sailing in a comedy sketch than sailing himself although he does at least say we offer this obvious comment but on the other hand, I really like that he describes the airplane as a seven-ton puzzle made of aluminum steel wire 
and another few thousand component parts, none of which add up to the right thing. So, taking both the plus and the minus column for this opening narration. The opening scene where an aeroplane lands at the airport, you would think is probably stock footage, but actually, Martin Grams Jr. in unlocking the door to a television classic, says that arrangements were made to film at Santa Monica Airport in the control tower on the landing strip and hangar, so it looks like this is actually genuine footage created for the show. But when the plane lands, it seems like nobody is in any rush to get off. Let's go in there! What about it? You need a can opener? What do they got, a hot poker game in there? You tell me. What about it? You dead asleep or what? Hey, George, ask him who's responsible for forgetting all the luggage. You better come in here and check me out. Look, I don't know what your problems are, but I got a pot for... You're gonna have to tell the passengers the luggage has been delayed. Some idiot let this plane take off without so much as an envelope in there. Yeah, well, I'd be happy to, except for one thing. What? There aren't any passengers. Come here. This is a really great setup. You know, this plane landing, nobody on board, perfect Twilight Zone material. Who isn't drawn in at this point? So next we go to the operations room, which was filmed in a studio, and... Our lead character, Grant Sheckley, walks in. Now, he's a kind of no-nonsense, I know what I'm doing here, I've done it a million times before, so don't waste my time, kind of guy. Gentlemen, this is not a formal hearing, it's more in the nature of a preliminary meeting. Now, as your operations chief noted, we're here to unearth as many facts as we can. I'd appreciate hearing from you only facts. And you can save us all a lot of time if you'd avoid personal hypotheses so we can keep the air clear and not clutter it up with six dozen theories. Theories happen to be my business. In the 20-odd years I've been with the FAA, I've got a pretty good record in putting together jigsaw puzzles. Maybe some of them haven't been as abnormal as this one, but I'll lay my batting average on the line any hour of the day. All right? Let's get down to business. So our lead character, Grant Sheckley, is played by Harold Stone and... The surname Sheckley is taken from the science fiction writer Robert Sheckley. And at this time in America on the newsstands you would find these wonderful pulpy magazines of which I have several called things like If, Worlds of Science Fiction or Galaxy Magazine that were about the size of your average paperback novel and inside they were filled with short stories. Often there would be a longer feature story and a few shorter ones. A very famous Twilight Zone story, Time Enough at Last, originated in one of these pulp magazines. They're wonderful things just brimming with imagination, and Robert Sheckley was a frequent contributor to these kinds of magazines. Now Robert Sheckley may have been the originator, or at least an early creator of, a particular type of story. His 1953 story, Seventh Victim from Galaxy Magazine, is described like this. The story concerns a future society that has eliminated major warfare by allowing members of society who are inclined to violence to join the big hunt, a human hunting game. 
This eliminates the approximately one quarter of the population that would otherwise be a danger. The story follows an experienced hunter who is excited to receive his latest mission, but is faced with the concern that something is seriously wrong with the assignment. So the seeds of everything from The Running Man, Battle Royale, The Hunger Games and The Purge can be found in this story, which in itself was adapted for radio and film. As I said earlier, the actor who plays Grant Sheckley is Harold Stone and he was born in 1913 into a Jewish show business family who were a staple of the Yiddish theatre and Harold started his career on stage as a child with his father. And he worked his way up the hard way just by putting the hours in on stage and eventually he worked his way into television and film. Now he never really became a big star for one particular role but he was more one of those guys who was always around. Early on he worked in films like Spartacus but it was television where he earned his bread and butter. He had those very Romanesque features and he could easily slip into the role of a crime boss or a hard-boiled cop. He also wasn't a stranger to a bit of pulpy sci-fi himself in movies like The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. He only did the one Twilight Zone and it is a very solid performance from a very solid performer. He is that kind of actor, you know, dependable, he'll come in and he'll do good work for you. Now, initially in the story, he is that guy who comes in, he knows his job, he knows that he's the smartest guy in the room when it comes to this particular thing. And his confidence does occasionally slip into arrogance, but for the most part, he just seems to be good at his job, and he knows he is. And it's just a case of, I know what I'm doing, I know what needs to be done, so let's not waste time and let's just get it done. So it's interesting to see a man like that so confident and organized unravel when he enters the Twilight Zone. Eventually the investigation goes from the operations room to the hangar itself where the airplane is stored. And Sheckley finds the names of the pilots and the passengers seem to be very familiar to him. And true to his word, Sheckley begins to notice things that aren't quite adding up. Thanks then, come here. Do you see a number on that tail? Talking about of course I see a number. Read it off to me. N67588. Hey Robbins. Do you see that same number on the tail? N804758. What's the matter? Are we going crazy or something? We're all seeing different numbers. Gentlemen, I have a theory. Unfortunately, the only way I can prove it or disprove it is going to put me in considerable jeopardy. Any one of you ever hear of mass suggestion? Now, we have a relatively large cast here. There's a few guys milling around, but it's tough to really talk about them without just repeating myself you know they all have similar types of resume that all hard-working actors of the time and if i have a criticism i suppose that it's 
that the episode is just stacked with these 30 to 40 year old guys in suits standing around talking, all very similar in a way, so they kind of just blend into one another, and I suppose it was probably a pretty fair representation of who would have been in those kind of jobs at that time, you know, just middle-aged white guys, so I guess it is what it is, but I think if you stack it against something like And When the Sky Was Opened, you know, three guys were the main leads in that, but they had very distinct personalities about them, and you had the likes of Rod Taylor who really elevated his part, and you know, there's nothing wrong with anyone in this, everyone is just fine, but I think the episode would have benefited from you know, an actor or actors who were just a little bit different or brought a magnetic performance to it like Rod Taylor did. So Sheckley's theory is that this is some form of mass hypnosis or suggestion and to prove it, he walks in to the propeller blades and then the plane promptly disappears. Now, personally, I'd have opted to throw a broom handle into them or something, but I guess that's not as dramatic and I suppose that if this is an illusion the illusion could stretch to the snapping of a broom handle but not the taking of a life but this is all supposition however it's done the plane disappears well gentlemen I believe I've proven my point Langston Malloy so the twist here is not that the plane doesn't exist, it's that none of this situation exists. So it's kind of a neat little double hit for the audience. But we're only actually 17 minutes into the episode by this point, with 8 minutes left to go, so it's revealed quite early on. Bankston, what happened? What are you talking about? Aren't you... You're Sheckley, aren't you? Aren't you Sheckley of the FAA? What kind of a gag is this? Who do you think I am? What's going on? What is the problem? Now, when Sheckley goes back to the operations room, he sees Bankston and one of the other people, and I've seen it commented before that this is a bit of a goof. Bankston seems to know of Sheckley rather than actually know him, but how can Sheckley have imagined Bankston earlier if he didn't really know him? I'm not too bothered with that to be honest because I'm happy that they mix in aviation circles and could have been acquainted at some point or Sheckley has seen Bankston's file or something like that. It's, it's not really a big deal to me. But the thing is, it is Grant Sheckley's perspective that is manufacturing these phantoms, so... While he's on screen, that's fine, but there are parts of this that occur while he's not on screen, like when the plane lands, or the crewman goes on to check where the passengers are, that kind of thing. Those things all happen while Sheckley isn't around, so is he imagining that these things are happening while he's driving to the airport or something? I suppose you could rationalise it like that. But it does seem like a little tightening up of that part of it could have been used because sometimes I feel like a twist is a little game between the writer and the viewer. Can you see this coming? Can you guess what I'm going to do? So if the rules of that twist don't work within themselves, then it is a bit of a cheat. Thanks, then. 
You checked me out. Didn't that flight arrive with nobody on it? No crew, no stewardess, no passengers, no baggage? No, Mr. Sheckley. Flight 107 from our airline arrived at 12.50 today on schedule. You mean to stand there and tell me you're not missing an aircraft? That's exactly what he's telling you, mister. We're not missing any Flight 107 or any other flight. How could that be? You never missed a Flight 107? That's right. That's right. You were the examiner on that one. On what one? We lost just one flight in some 20-odd years. Just one. Flight 107? Flight 107. But, Mr. Sheckley, that was some 17 or 18 years ago. Flight 107 out of Buffalo. Flight 107 out of Buffalo. But like I said, that was 17, 18 years ago. Well, what happened to her? Lost in the fog. Never found. We figured she must have gone off course, went out over the ocean, went down there. You never found her? Never found her. So this whole thing has been a figment of Sheckley's imagination, brought on by the fact that he's haunted by the one case that he couldn't solve. So why does Mr. Sheckley deserve this brush with the Twilight Zone? Was it his arrogance? I don't really think so. I think he's more confident and no-nonsense than truly arrogant. I think it's more that, like the closing narration says, he drags this one case along with him like a weight, when he really should just let it go. The Twilight Zone doesn't just punish people for acts of genuine villainy, but sometimes it punishes people for letting themselves become too enslaved by a human weakness that we're all prone to. In this case, it's not letting go of the past. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned a review in Variety, and both Martin Grams Jr. and Mark Zickrey bring up that review in their respective books. In The Twilight Zone Companion, Zickrey prints this part of that review, and it says, The show now seems to be feeding off itself. Last Friday's episode, unless it proves to be an exception in the new scheme, doesn't bode well for the future of the series. Twilight Zone seems to be running dry of inspiration. I don't necessarily disagree with that review. I think The Arrival definitely does recycle some previous Twilight Zone elements. You know, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking the aviation mystery elements of The Odyssey of Flight 33. And then there's King Nine Will Not Return, which also has an aviation theme, but also this main theme of a man being haunted by a past failure that manifests in kind of phantom imagery, something that he wishes he could change or do differently. And perhaps there are more Twilight Zones that contribute to this in some way. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickrey calls the episode a cop-out, saying that it doesn't make good on the promise of its opening. Which is quite harsh, but I don't necessarily disagree with that either. The question is probably more interesting than the answer in this case. But is it as bad as either of them say? Well, I don't think so. You know, with the luxury of looking at the Twilight Zone and Sailing's work as a whole, we see this all the time. He often recycles elements. He redoes things wholesale. He tells similar stories, but comes at them from different directions. 
How many times has he done the late thirties man has a crisis story? But they're some of his most beloved works and he was extremely prolific. So for me that it's derivative isn't an issue, but does it stand up against those other works? That's the real question. And for me, it doesn't entirely, but overall in the fabric of the Twilight Zone as a whole, it's a perfectly enjoyable episode. I do think that the ending doesn't quite live up to the promise of its beginning, but what it does have to say is quite an interesting thing within itself. You know, crime fiction often uses this trope of the retired detective who had that one case that he couldn't crack that still haunts him. In this case, it's an air disaster investigator, and we don't have to be in the same job to have some level of understanding of him being haunted by the past. What the arrival tells us is that we all have things in our past that we wish had gone differently, both professionally or in our personal lives. And we do have to learn from them, but ultimately we have to move on from them, otherwise their influence grows and it takes hold until in the end it ends up suffocating us. The saving grace for Grant Sheckley is that the Twilight Zone's intervention may just lead to his salvation. Picture of a man with an Achilles heel. A mystery that landed in his life and then turned into a heavy weight, dragged across the years to ultimately take the form of an illusion. Now that's the clinical answer that they put on the tag as they take him away. But if you choose to think that the explanation has to do with an airborne flying Dutchman, a ghost ship in a fog-enshrouded night and a flight that never ends, then you're doing your business in an old stand in the Twilight Zone. Bit of a tricky episode, this one. There wasn't really anything in the way of trivia, so it basically just came down to my review of it, which I don't really like to do. I like to mix the two, but you got to work with what you've got, so ultimately, that's what I had to do. Now, normally, I would go to the listener emails, but I'm going to postpone that for the moment because if you follow the Twilight Zone podcast Twitter account, Twilight Zone Net, then you will know that I've lost my voice uh, over the past couple of weeks and, you know, I've had the episode prepared and ready to go and been dying to record it, but... I've just not been able to speak. Now, I could have waited to do this one, but I just wanted to keep things moving, keep that momentum going, and get an episode out. And considering that this was quite a light one, and there's really not much to it, I thought, I'll do it anyway, even though my voice isn't quite up to speed. So, but I'm going to save my voice for that feedback, and I might either tag it on to the next episode, or do a short kind of feedback catch-up podcast because there's a a bit of it to get through so if you have written in i will get to your messages don't worry about that and uh, and thank you for doing so before i go i just want to say thank you to some people who have left itunes reviews there's anthony valentine he's become a good friend of the show recently so thank you for that anthony there's ny phil g and Samantha Kenny. So thank you very much for your kind reviews. I really appreciate it. And it really helps get the podcast out there. And also a quick mention to the Patreon campaign that I launched recently. It's always a bit nerve-wracking when you do something like that because you think, well, maybe no one will 
actually sign up to it but I'm happy to say that some very kind and generous listeners to the show have signed up to support the Twilight Zone podcast and you know for the first time uh, this month the Twilight Zone podcast has paid for itself basically well it hasn't paid for itself you the people who have supported it have paid for it and you've paid those hosting fees and so on so I want to thank everyone for that you know there's been about 35 people sign up at the moment which is great and I set the contribution level low uh, at a dollar because in my mind I would rather a hundred people contributed a dollar than two people contribute fifty dollars each because you know a dollar people won't even notice that going out of their account but fifty dollars you know there might come a point where someone will say well actually I can't really afford to do that anymore so I set it low so it would be easy to jump on board if you want to support the podcast and get a little extra for your support now that little extra is in the form of a new show called the fifth dimension now the first episode is already on there it's a reading of the short story the fly which went on to inspire the film and possibly in the next episode as way of linking to this one i might read the seventh victim by robert sheckley because it's not directly connected to the Twilight Zone, so it's not something that I would read on this podcast. But, you know, there's a kind of link there, so I'll probably do it on the fifth dimension, maybe in the next show. So if you want to support the Twilight Zone podcast, head over to patreon.com slash Podcast, and anything that you can uh, offer is appreciated. And like I said, there's only that one dollar reward level now if it gets to a particular point then at that point i will activate a two dollar reward level and what that will be is another new podcast and it's kind of a podcast that i've always wanted to do if you think of the twilight zone each story is an individual thing it's not a mythology as a whole you know we look for similarities and themes going through it but it's an anthology and this other thing that I would like to do is actually looking at a mythology a kind of series a group of stories in different media and I think it would be interesting to apply the same level of research and analysis that I do with the Twilight Zone podcast to an actual mythology something that does have links to other things and so on a bigger story and that's something i will do if i get to the next reward level so i'll speak more about that if uh, if we get there but for now i want to thank everyone who has supported me and i hope that you as a listener to the twilight zone podcast will consider supporting me too over on patreon so hopefully i'll be in a better voice next time but let's hand over to rod sailing to see what our next episode is going to be. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week on The Twilight Zone, we use a camera like an X-ray and look under the skin of a neighborhood of men and women. It's a little experiment in human nature and behavior on the night that a Conrad broadcast shatters their composure with an announcement of terse terror. A bomb is coming. Most of our stories are a little far out. This one is very close in. You'll see what I mean next week when we present The Shelter. 
sure and watch Gunsmoke, starring James Arness, Saturday nights over most of these same stations. <laughs>